Um, Galatians chapter 3 is where we are this morning. It's a pretty hard-hitting, straightforward passage, and I plan to preach it in its uh, rhythm and cadence. We'll see how the Lord uh, takes us. Let me just read verses 1 through 5 to get us started. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? May God bless the reading of his word. For most of us, uh, last Monday's Halloween celebration is a distant memory. Can you believe that was just a week ago? For some of you, it affected you not at all. You cut your lights off like good Christians and evacuate, right? (laughs) For me, somehow, I live in Kempton Hills and 500 people come by with their sin of not Satan worship, but candy lust at my door, expecting me to feed them sugar and to promote this. Um, we're all ready to move on from Halloween for one reason or another. Uh, my, one of my children cited a Christmas tree, I think, in the garden area at Lowe's yesterday. But before moving on from last Monday, I want to mention that I heard on the briefing by Al Mohler. He was talking about Halloween, and he said that Halloween is now the second most commercialized, moneyed, and celebrated holiday in our country, second to Christmas leaving Valentine's Day and Easter in the rearview mirror at a distant third and fourth place. Well, it begs the question, why? Why is Halloween becoming so commercialized? The children do have a lot of fun, but I think Halloween and the expression of what was being communicated by podcast is that our culture is becoming clearly more and more fascinated with darker and darker things, the occult. And as dangerous as this is in our culture and as immoral as it is to become fascinated with darker and darker things, all you have to do is see the the media that is promoting movies that are becoming darker and more clearly satanic and tolerated at levels culturally that are disgusting compared to even 10 years ago. But as dangerous as that is for our children and for us, I think the devil is very satisfied with this kind of focus and probably not for the reason that you might think. Satan obviously wants us to be fascinated with darker things, but Satan wants us also to be distracted by darker, more superficial things then his primary attacks that happen here within the church and the onslaughts that he creates on people's souls to try to woo them and draw them into his eternal hell. What he is doomed for, he wants to take people to with him. 
And he does so not typically normally through fascination with the occult and dark things, but through dumbing down or distorting or distracting people from the gospel. He wants to divert our attention. Even he wants to take you and put you on a crusade against darker things, forgetting about the importance of the clarity of the gospel, which saves you from hell. Satan's schemes are subtle, though still drastic, though still dire, and though still eternally destructive. This is why Galatians 3 exists. Paul is deeply concerned about a bewitching spell that had been cast across the churches of Lower Asia Minor, over the churches of Galatia. These churches were, as one translator put it, bedeviled or bewitched. Now, in archaeological digs and studies and manners and customs, they have found parchments and scrolls that talk about how casting spells and incantations and the like were all in vogue during that time. People were doing the occult then, obviously. But that's not really what Paul is talking about here. This bewitching influence, which means to have an evil eye as if you are possessed and in love with evil. This bewitching influence really was his way of talking the coinage of the day and saying it is as if you are entranced by Satan because you are obscuring the gospel. You are forgetting the truth of the gospel. You're putting aside faith and welcoming works. That's what it means to be bewitched. And he's talking to believers. He's talking to us. He's talking to the church. People who regularly can come under a spell like this. People like, catch it, the Apostle Peter, who came under a spell like this who along with false teachers that had crept into the church was aligning with them, hurting new believers, as Galatians chapter 2 verse 4 talks about, those who slipped in to spy out our freedom, those who were verse 3 of chapter 2, forcing people to be circumcised, putting guilt trips on people to harm them. This is what happens and is pervasive within church culture. And this is satanic and this is to be bewitched. It's to be avoided. You may very well need this kind of Pauline intervention this morning to take the spell off of your life, to break it by means of an intervention. The way that Paul intervenes here is... Curious and interesting. It's curious to me, even in terms of the way it's written grammatically, the the literary device Paul uses to break the spell, but probably just more importantly and practically, it's important to see that Paul is disarming people through a series of rhetorical questions. He's asking five questions to break the spell of legalism in the life of the church. These are five questions to diagnose what is really going wrong in the heart. 
And this is the call of the Christian to Christian where we ask each other questions like these. A rhetorical question is a question for examination, not a question for dialogue per se. It's a question that you use to cause someone to ask not back to the questioner or to respond to the questioner, but for the person being questioned to actually move internally into their own examination of their heart. Not to look back at the questioner, but to hear the question and then to look inside and say, what is really going on inside of me? So it outlines well, we have five rhetorical questions before us, one question per each verse. The first one is found after he says, O foolish Galatians, verse 1. First of all, he's calling these believers foolish. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, warned against calling people fools, and that word is the word for moron. We're not supposed to angrily take people down. That's not the word Paul is using here. He's using a different term for being senseless. He's saying, church, you are being senseless by the way that you are conducting yourselves, by the way that you are bewitched. And his question is asking, what is the source of this attack? You're being attacked and it's making you foolish. Not foolish like an unbeliever. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, the psalmist is addressing unbelievers. First Corinthians 2, Paul calls people who are unbelievers, naturally minded people who cannot receive the things of the Spirit. The gospel is foolishness to them or folly and shame. He's not talking to them as if they are true unbelievers, but he's saying to them, you are acting like unbelievers. You're acting like you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, which is both discouraging and encouraging. It's encouraging in the sense that an unbeliever really can be a believer. I mean, a believer can really still be a believer and act this foolishly. But it's discouraging in the sense that Paul is needing to take out the gospel defibrillator paddles and put them on the chest of this church to say, wake up. So Paul's not addressing their salvation status, but he is using language to shock them. He wants them to come out from this spell. I have to mention something about spiritual warfare here because the word bewitched doesn't mean that they were satanically attacked in a way that they were not responsible. They are responsible to diagnose themselves for them to answer the question in their own hearts. Who has bewitched me? What is going wrong? Spiritual warfare is multifaceted. In one sense, Ephesians 6 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood and all of that is behind a, a veil in another dimension, right? Where there are demons, there, are, there is the devil who seeks to devour us. There is warfare dynamics going on that we cannot see and primarily we cannot feel. It's of another dimension, of another realm, but it's just on the other side of the curtain. It's present. It's here. The effects are felt. But the battle is of the theater of war in that is not for us to go behind the curtain per se, but for us to fight the good fight of faith as 
Christians. There is a moral dimension that's going on. We have to fight the good fight of faith faith with the gospel and our moral choices, believing the truth, not rejecting the truth, not believing the father of lies, but clinging to the truth and saying we need to meditate on whatsoever is true. So the first rhetorical question, who's bewitched? Did Satan bewitch them? Did the false brothers bewitch them? Remember, false brothers is mentioned earlier in, the, in chapter 2, those who slipped in in verse 4 of chapter 2. Or is the answer that the Christians themselves have bewitched themselves in their own minds? So is it the devil? Is it the false teachers? Is it their own minds? Where is the source of warfare? And the answer is all three, all of the above, and yes. We are to resist the devil. We are to fight and be warned against false teaching and false teachers. And we are also fighting our own flesh within our own minds. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. So that's the first diagnostic. That's the first question. Who's bewitched you? Well, this is a battle that's raging within their own hearts. And secondly... Paul immediately goes right to, in verse 1, the answer, which is to make a beeline straight for the cross. He said, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So how does Paul immediately fight back against this bewitching influence? He immediately takes the church to the cross. Let me ask you this. Were these Galatian believers exposed to or present at literally physically present at the place where Jesus died in Jerusalem what does it say it says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified were they there well perhaps someone was there who was part of the Galatian church and had been there at Pentecost and had pilgrimaged back you know from Jerusalem back home But primarily, these are brand new believers who had been evangelized by Paul and Barnabas in the first missionary journey. Remember we talked about that? He had won these people to Christ. They were Gentile believers primarily. And I just have to say, they weren't there. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul here is saying that he preached Christ and him crucified to win these people to Christ. The Greek word here for publicly portrayed is a word where we get the word graphic. It's, it's pro-graphically. It was something that was published before their eyes. When? When Paul preached. Listen, we underestimate the power of preaching, I know. We do. Our media age that we live in subverts the power of preaching, but do not underestimate it. The preaching of the gospel is how people see Christ crucified. It is. You hear the word of God, and by faith, you see with the eyes of faith Christ and him crucified. You don't just see an image. You see it through your heart with the affectionate value that this is what life is all about. The world is on the fulcrum of Christ crucified. 
Will you take Christ as Savior and Lord? Will you take Christ as a substitutionary sacrifice for your sins? Will you believe that Christ's atonement covers everything that you've ever done? That you were this before and now because of Christ crucified, you are a new creature in Christ. That's Christ published in our hearts where we see and believe in Christ Christ, I mean, Paul said that to the Corinthians. Do you remember that? Where he said, I know nothing but Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. He made that decision to know nothing but that. And it's the same spirit here reflected to the Galatians. It's Christ's death that is once and for all the atonement. Paul is leading right into his next rhetorical question, his next diagnostic in verse 2, by creating a groundwork, a gospel groundwork foundation to say salvation is everything. When you're talking about adding works as some sort of bewitching thing where you're trying to perfect yourself in the flesh, we have to wipe the erase board clean and say, let's start with your salvation. Let's start with the groundwork, which is Christ crucified, and it leads into verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Stop there. Paul is boiling everything down to one thing at this immediate moment with this phrase. The language here is beautiful. He literally is saying, I want to know one, I want to learn, Matthew 2.0, like the word disciple. I want to be a disciple of your answer here. I want to learn one thing from you. He says, did you, and he's going back to salvation, did you receive the Spirit? That's conversion. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's one or the other. Did you come to Christ by the Holy Spirit's work when you heard the word of God by faith, or did you do something? He's just boiling everything down to this question. Point two, what is the source of your salvation? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? To receive the Holy Spirit is to be saved. Romans chapter 8 says as much, all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. You have received the spirit of adoption, Romans eight fourteen, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13. The love of Christ has been shed abroad in your heart when you are saved. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is the quickening work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And when you need to reduce everything back to one thing, down to one thing, it's good to go to the saving work of Christ in your heart. You saw Christ crucified and you either received the Spirit of God or you did not. But you did not earn your way into the kingdom of God through law-keeping. Remembering that in your heart it was by the hearing of faith. Romans 10 goes in and through this. I'm not going to take too much time, but all of preaching and missions and hearing by faith and the nation's believing comes down to this. Missions is going places and 
publicizing Christ crucified so people can hear that and see that and receive the Holy Spirit and believe. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, verse 13, shall be saved, will be saved. How will they hear on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? This is missions. And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who do what? Preach. Preach the good news. They preach the gospel. But they have not obeyed, all obeyed the gospel. This is Isaiah. It's a reference to Isaiah 6. Who will go for us? Who will go for me? uh, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And the answer, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. And I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have for their voice. Listen, missions. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. This is Christianity. Christianity is not a religious work-based thing, institution. It's about believing. It's hearing and believing. That's why preaching is important to us. Preaching the word and receiving the spirit, goes hand, they go hand in hand. This is the means of receiving the Spirit by hearing the Word and believing. Happens all around the world. And remembering when your life got flipped over, where you were going one way and then you got flipped and the Spirit of God entered into your life and you began to be convicted of sin, you began to have an appetite to read the Bible, you began to want to sing songs like we just sang, you began to want to have Christian friends, is what brings us back sane. We're bewitched. We're acting like an unbeliever again. Stop it. Christ crucified. That's right. I heard the word. That's right. The spirit entered my life. Okay. It's a way that the bewitching influence spell is broken. The spirit of God is a person. He came into your life. He's inescapable, loving He's the accountability. He's what has been poetically called the hound of heaven who traces after your scent and won't let you go. And he magnifies Christ in our hearts. Number three, the third question. What is the source not just of your salvation, but the next logical question is, what is the source of your sanctification? You say, sanctification, you've just lost me. I'm tuning out for 10 minutes. I'll be back. No, sanctification. This is Christian growth. Christian growth. How do you grow? What is the means by which you grow? How do you become more like Jesus Christ? How do you do it? Understanding what sanctification is and how it happens is very important to the Christian. And it was very important for the Apostle Paul to ask this question. It's a rhetorical question. Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that's salvation by the Holy Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul goes right back for the jugular, calling these Christian folks foolish, asking the question, are you so foolish? Are you so bewitched? Are you so misguided in your thinking and actions? 
where you're harming people by trying to heap on heavy law-keeping burdens, by trying to place legalism on people's backs. Oh, I love Anchorage, Alaska. I must digress. This is a non-legalistic zone, is it not? Oh, to be delivered from the South. It's, it's incredible. It's way, way different here. I love it. It makes me want to grab a cup of coffee right now and just throw it on the floor just to say it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Nobody cared. People got more comfortable because I did that, right? That's beautiful. But people get so wound up in legalism. They get bothered, distressed, unhealthy, fearful, believing they're not measuring up. They've lost their salvation. They can't get in. They're not in good graces. God's not smiling on them. I've sinned one too many times. And so now God doesn't love me. Now God has left me. Now I'm in trouble. Now my friends won't like me anymore. People won't take me back. All of those legalistic burdens are soul-stifling and super, super harmful. So it's so important to understand that we were saved by the Spirit. And guess what? You are kept by the Holy Spirit and you are grown by or growing by the Holy Spirit. You are. You are. Let me just break down sanctification a little bit for you to try to clear some of this up. Because if we get it wrong, suddenly we can fall really quickly into legalism. Paul is using an argument in verse 3 that's called the reductio ad absurdum. It's the absurdity of the argument that exposes why it's absurd. He's saying, having begun by the Holy Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you think the Holy Spirit just vacates the building of your life? Now that he made you born again, made you an adopted child, being perfected, the word telos there, it's the idea of being brought into completion. Do you think this work now is your work and not God's work? If God is changing you, then what could you possibly add to that work and process to make it better? That's what he's asking. Let me clarify sanctification. Sanctification means to be made holy. It's growing And it's really boiled down to asking yourself, who sanctifies you as you walk the Christian life of faith? The standard and simplistic answer is to say, my salvation was all up to God and my sanctification or personal holiness is now all up to me. Is that good? Number two. The opposite simplistic answer, an equally wrong answer, is to say my salvation, my sanctification is boiled down to a single phrase. Let me see if you can guess it, class. Let go and let God, right? It's the deeper life movement. It's the idea that you move from just being a standard run-of-the-mill Christian, what this one guy called being a turkey, to then shifting to flying, soaring high as an eagle. So we're, and this guy had an English accent that I used to love to impersonate. I used to go, are you a turkey or are you an eagle? And that was his big thing. And, and, but it's super confusing because you go, man, I guess I'm a turkey because I bombed again. Gobble, gobble, you know, and you just feel bummed. That's messed up. The third and closer definition is to say, quote, I view my sanctification as a partnership or two-sided coin, believing it's all up to God while acting as if it's all up to me. You know God's working, but I better work, man, and I better really take it serious in my strength as if it's all up to me. All these definitions really fall short 
in terms of what the Bible says is really going on. I read a good book, and I did a Bible study in it recently. I would still recommend it. It's called The Bookends of the Christian Life, and it breaks down Christian sanctification like no other. It's written by Jerry Bridges, the late Jerry Bridges, who wrote Trust in God and other great books. He takes two terms, and they're confusing, uh, but I have to touch on them just to try to clarify this balance of sanctification. Monergism and synergism. Monergism means God saves alone, and he does it by himself. When he saves you, you didn't save yourself. Synergism is the work of God and you in your life as you grow. So how do these terms interact with each other? Well, it's not just monergism in salvation and synergism and sanctification. It's monergism in salvation And it's also monergism in your sanctification. God is also growing you and promises to grow you even in spite of you for all of your life here. And he will fulfill that promise no matter what you do. That's monergism or God's work alone in your sanctification. But within that monergism, there's also synergism where you work with God in your sanctification. So how does that break down? Let me just take the scripture. Philippians 1.6. Here's monergism in your sanctification or in your Christian growth. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1.6. Now here's synergism, Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but with much more, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation With fear and trembling. Remember the next verse? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you have synergism in verse 12, and then you have God's sovereign promise to superintend and work in you and bring this about for his own glory and pleasure. Other places, Romans and Colossians, monergism, synergism, Romans 8, 28 and 29, for we know... For those who love God, all things work together for the good. God is working everything out. It's his plan. It's his purposes, his sovereign grace in all of our lives. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those... Now listen, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be... Here's sanctification. This is monergism. This is what God does. He, he foreknew you in his mind. He said, I love this person. Insert your name, your life, your soul. He knew you. That's foreknowledge. And so he said, I'm going to set my affection and love upon you. I'm going to choose you to be my adopted child. Then, then in real time and space, he adopts you. Why? To be conformed to the image of his son. So that he can make you like Jesus all of your life in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, here's Colossians 1, 28 and 29. This is Paul's philosophy of ministry. Him we proclaim. The New American Standard, I like it better. We proclaim him. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, this is Paul where he's talking about synergism here. He's talking about he's working with God. For this I toil, struggling with all my energy that he powerfully works within me. 
That word struggle is agonizomai. I agonize over, agonize over my own sanctification. Philippians 2.12 again. I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. First Timothy chapter 4 talks about getting into the, the gymnazo to work out for the purpose of godliness, to struggle and strive. We are to fight the good fight of faith. We're to run the race of endurance. I'm not saying that we don't work hard in our Christian life. I'm just saying God is going to work in your Christian life to make you like Jesus even when you fall down. So how does that work? Well, 2 Timothy, this is one of the most beautiful little verses that is just tucked into 2 Timothy that I love. Listen, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God's promise to sanctify you is not resting on whether you pass or fail. His promise to sanctify you is based on his own promise where he is putting his character on the line. He is making his promise unilaterally. He is putting it on him to grow you. 2 Corinthians 3.18, here's some synergism. We all with unveiled face, we're beholding the glory of the Lord. Are being, we're, we're, we love God. We see God's glory, but we're being transformed from, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he that, it is he who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Are we supposed to worry about being more fruitful in our lives? No. Putting monergism and synergism is like this. It's saying, I'm a branch. I know I'm a branch and I'm going to cling to the vine. I'm going to love Jesus with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and then watch him over the years do things in my life that I never thought could happen. It's exceedingly abundantly above all I could ask or think. It's where you look at yourself in the mirror and just say, I can't believe I'm a little bit better. And then as soon as you get there, pride comes from the fall and you blow it and you go, man, I can't believe God still loves me and I'm still growing. And that's sanctification. Someone said it this way, the hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, should probably be rewritten to be, the reason that I obey at all is because I'm trusting God's work in my life. I obey because I trust. It's not just like, okay, I trust, now I'm working. Okay, I'm with God, and I'm trusting Him and His sovereign work in my life, now I'm going to do something. No, it's I'm trusting God as I pass and fail and bump along in the Christian life, and he's working this out and making me more like him. And I'm relying ultimately on his promise. Let me tell you how this practically works out for your life, which can take away some of your legalistic spellcasting that you might be a part of, where you put heavy burdens on friends or families, family members, where you say, you need to grow. You need to be more like me, you know, or whatever, right? Where you do something like that. You, if you believe that God is growing people, then you can trust God more to grow the people that you love. Less than trusting yourself to try to influence people to grow, to be more like Jesus. It takes the burden off. It takes the pressure off to try to fix everyone. You can know God is growing people, the people you love. And so you don't have to, not as if you could. You can't grow people yourselves. All right, verse 4. We'll wrap this quick. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? 
So we're not perfected in the flesh, verse 3. We get that. We weren't perfected through physical circumcision or through works. Verse 4, now Paul is asking the church just to examine their own experience or testimony. Did you suffer? The word suffer here isn't talking about just generic experiences. It's actually talking about the cost of discipleship. Those who desire to live godly, a godly life will be persecuted. The church knew they were being persecuted. They were probably being shunned by the Judaizers. They were being made fun of. They were being discriminated against and abused. And Paul is very glibly saying, did you suffer that kind of verbal abuse and discrimination in vain? Was that indeed in vain? And the answer obviously is no. If you've ever lost friends for being a true outspoken Christian, if you've ever been exploited by people or ripped off because you're a Christian, you know what Paul is tapping into. And he's saying, was all that for naught? The answer is no. They didn't cave in to the false teachers. And so their suffering was real and they can recount that as a way to come out of their stupor. And now verse 5, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of law or by hearing with faith? Verse 5 is the last question. And I would just ask it this way. How has God worked in your life? The Holy Spirit was supplied by God to you. What has that meant? For you? Have you ever sensed God's leadership in your life? What Paul is saying is look at how much you can forfeit if you miss the fact that God is working in your life. If you try to turn your Christianity into works, then you're going to miss what God is doing in your life. What is so interesting to me in verse 5 is that there is a Trinitarian emphasis here. I've got to point this out. God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father all mentioned in these five verses. Verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. Paul preached and they saw Christ. And then he says in verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by the works of law? Yeah, once you believed, the Holy Spirit was in your life. And then verse 5, guess what? God the Father is He. Does He The he of verse 5, who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by the works of the law or by hearing of the faith. Listen, Paul's making a very clear point here to say Christ has been in your life, the Holy Spirit's been in your life, and the Father has always been in your life because he gave you the Holy Spirit and has affected your life with miracles. Miracles here probably has less to do with the sign gifts from the book of Acts attributed through the apostles, but more to do with salvation. Look at this. Miracles just means works of power or powers among you. What were the powers? The powers were the works that came by hearing with faith, not by works of law, but when the gospel is preached and people hear and believe. How do you become impressed with Christianity? Let me just boil it down this way. It's when somebody who you believe there is no possible way their heart could soften. You believe there's no possible way that person could be saved. It's someone you pray for, even knowing in your heart that you don't really believe they're ever going to be converted. And guess what happens? They get saved. Someone who's super hard becomes super soft and begins to convict you of your own life. And you go, it all really is 
real. That's what verse 5 is saying. God the Father supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you. This isn't by works. It's by people hearing and believing. And it's all true. What's Paul's solution to bewitching a, a bewitching spell? Well, it's people believing the gospel. It's faith. Gospel, the gospel is God's grace coming through faith alone. It's always been this way. Faith is by simply trusting in Christ, which, listen, if you haven't believed, it's trusting Christ and not yourself. That's faith. Faith is where God is directing you and leading you to see Christ as your Lord and Savior, not yourself as your Lord and Savior. Christ who saves you, who grows you, who sanctifies you, who takes you through suffering and saves your friends. When that's happening, Christ who saves you, he grows you, he takes you through suffering and he saves your friends. You go, man, I'm not under that spell anymore. It's not by works. I didn't do this. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Their work. 